You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. We're in Acts chapter 12 today, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. You remember last week we studied about persecution going uh, out throughout the land of Judea. And uh, people were scattered up. Christians were scattered. That means the gospel was scattered on up north of Israel to a, a city called Antioch. And last week we studied revival spreading throughout Antioch as the hand of the Lord was upon some Cyrenians and their ministry there. We did an in-depth look at what that means if the hand of the Lord is upon something. It speaks of strength and salvation and the good hand of the Lord upon, uh, upon people or upon movements. We also studied the severe hand of the Lord and judgment against those that are wicked. Just did an in-depth look at that a week ago. And now we see uh, a, a puny little king's hand. In chapter 12, verse 1, we see the hand of Herod as he's trying to be strong, you know, and, and to compare him. And in fact, throughout the chapter today, just do that on your own. Compare the strong hand of the Lord in this chapter against the, the weak hand of this King Herod as we go on through. But this hand went on out uh, and began to harass or vex or hurt or harm uh, the people that are in the church that were calling themselves Christians. Now you remember also from chapter 11 that it was in Antioch that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians, meaning uh, belonging to Christ or a disciple of Christ or little Christ. Remember, it was a derogatory term that they would use to say, oh, you're nothing but a little Jesus, you know, nothing but, nothing but a follower of, of Christ. Um, but what a compliment that is to us as Christians, am I right? But remember, Jesus says, you know what? If you're going to be my disciple, you got to remember that a disciple is not above his master. The world hated me. It's going to hate you also. The world ended up putting Jesus to death. So you can just expect, it should be no surprise, that the world is going to hate you as you're vocal about Jesus. And the world is going to want to put you to death as well as you're living for him. And so the world, the, the, Christian, uh, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And now, first verse of chapter 12, we see those Christians uh, suffering just as Jesus suffered. And so we're introduced again to this man, Herod. And Herod is a man, a character that we, we read about all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the book of Acts. And some of you might think, you know what, it seems like this guy lives forever. You know, what, what's he drinking? What's he putting in his coffee? What kind of energy, energy drink does he have? Because he's, he's all over the place. He's constantly coming up. Well, it's important to know Herod was a family name. And so often when you read about Herod, you're reading about the grandpa Herod, or you're reading about the grandson Herod, or the great-grandson Herod. You remember one of the first Herods we're introduced to was Herod the Great, who was ruling about the time of Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 2, it says, wise men came from the east uh, to Jerusalem. They followed a star and they came to Herod the Great and they said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we've seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him. And if you know anything about Herod the Great, Herod the Great was a paranoid man who was always worried that someone was going to take his throne away from him. In fact, uh, outside of Bethlehem, there's a, there was a little hill that he ended up building up into a mountain and building a castle up on top so that if anyone ever invaded the land of Judea, he'd be able to vacate up to his little mountain on this hill of, uh, oh shoot, name's escaping me right now. I've been there, but can't remember off the top of my head. Tell me again. Uh, Masada is a different a place that he built another hiding place. So just a paranoid guy, always building these places to run off to. Funny thing is, is while he's sitting up there worried, the king of the kings was born within view, within binocular view of his, of his throne. And so um, the, the, the crazy thing is that when he heard about this king of the Jews being born, Matthew chapter 2 tells us he was exceedingly troubled and all Jerusalem with him just panicky, just freaked out. And so he, you know, kind of figured out, you know, where this king was supposed to be born and what time and all of this. And he sent the wise men out and he said, hey, go into Bethlehem, search for the young child. When you find him, bring back word to me that I can come and worship him also. 
When you gather from the rest of the chapter, that was not his intent at all. In fact, the, the wise men were divinely warned in a dream that they should not go back and tell Herod where Jesus was, but they were to flee to their country by another way. And when Herod found out that he'd been deceived, he was exceedingly angry and he put forth a command to destroy all male children two years old and under in Bethlehem and all of its districts. And so that's the kind of vain man that great grandpa Herod the Great was, you know, panicked about his throne being taken over uh, and, and even to the point of murdering little kids to try and weed out wherever this little king was going to be born. That's great grandpa, you know, and they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's the case. You remember that uh, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, take the young child and his mother, flee to the land of Egypt. For those who, uh, there, there's men out there who are seeking the young child's life to destroy him. So they fled down to Egypt. And then when Herod the Great had died, an angel spoke to Joseph and said, take Mary and the child, go back to the land of Israel because Herod the Great's dead. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus went back up to Israel. And it says, when Joseph heard that Herod Archelaus was on the throne, he was afraid and didn't know what to do because Herod Archelaus, the next Herod, uh, was a wicked man who only ruled for two years because he was a little bit psycho, you know, and he ended up killing 3000 Pharisees in his two years on the throne. He ended up being exiled off to, uh, to wherever they exiled people at that time, right? Um, but an angel then spoke to Joseph and said, okay, avoid Herod Archelaus and go to the land of Galilee that it might be fulfilled that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So God's just working sovereignly in these Herods and their crazy attitudes that they have. He's always working sovereignly in the midst of these guys. So Herod Archelaus only lasted two years. Then came Archelaus's brother, Herod Antipas. Read about Herod Antipas throughout the Gospels. He's the one who stole his brother's wife, Herodias, and, uh, and John the Baptist spoke out against that. And so he had John the Baptist put in prison. And you remember his daughter was doing a seductive dance before him and somehow he was captivated by that and he said, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, it's yours. And so Mama Herod said, hey, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. So John the Baptist was murdered that day by Herod Antipas. Later on, we see Herod Antipas uh, at Jesus's trial. Pilate sent Jesus over to Herod and Herod, hearing about Jesus, wanted Jesus to do some kind of magic trick for him. But Jesus wouldn't even talk to Herod. Herod was outraged by that and said, just get out of my sight and mock Jesus and kicked Jesus out. That's Herod Antipas. And now as we come to the book of Acts, we come to Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa uh, the first. And, you know, all of these kings, you know, they were notorious for killing, you know, the, the 15 sons that they had or 13 of their wives they'd murder, you know, and just wicked, wicked men that that apple, you know, never fell too far from the tree. And that's the case here too with Herod Agrippa the first, who it says stretched out his hand uh, to harass uh, some from the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter. So one thing we want to know about Herod Agrippa I was that he was a very vain man. He was very concerned with his image. And he was a man pleaser. Didn't care about what God thought. You know, he was half Jewish. And so he believed and he would even observe practices, uh, Jewish practices and customs. But he didn't fear the God of Abraham Rather, he feared the descendants of Abraham. He cared more about what the people thought. And so he realized, you know what? If I start killing Christians, they're going to like me. So he began with killing James, uh, the brother of John. So how strong was this persecution in, in chapter 12? Strong persecution, deadly persecution as James is the first apostle to be martyred. So if you had a timeline of the book of Acts, we're at that tick on the timeline that says first apostle martyred. Uh, James, the brother of John, was nicknamed Son of Thunder with his brother. They were the Sons of Thunder, kind of the biker gang of the day, except for the, you know, the bikers for Christ, you know. They were just known to be uh, kind of harsh guys, kind of rough around the edges, you know. I believe it was in Nazareth when the, the Nazarenes rejected Jesus. James and John said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to come down and consume this whole city because they rejected you? And Jesus 
whoa, man, we, we came to seek and save the lost, not destroy everybody, you know? And uh, just these guys, they were just, yeah, you know, hardcore for Jesus. And uh, it's also James and John. You remember when they were called, they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They were actually mending their nets. And when Jesus called them, he says, hey, come follow me. What'd they do? Drop their nets and follow Jesus. It was an immediate change of life for them as they immediately followed hard after Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, we read about James and John's mother, um, let me catch the name, Solomne, uh, came to Jesus and said, you know, as only a mom could say, hey, Jesus, I want to ask you something, whatever it is, I want you to do it. And Jesus says, speak, <laughs> you know, she says, grant that my two boys, James and John, can sit at your right hand in your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking. You know, that's not even up for me to decide. That's up for my father to decide. And so uh, Jesus goes, but I will ask you this. Are you guys able to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And James and John, oh yeah, absolutely we will. Whatever it takes, just give us the title. Okay, give us right-hand man title, you know. Jesus' best you know, vice presidents. We want the title. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. You are going to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of. You are going to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. But still, it's not up to me to decide who sits at my right hand. That's up to the father. And so when he spoke of this cup and this baptism that they too would partake of, he spoke of the wrath of the world being poured out through persecution As Jesus was going to have people hate him, shoot out the lip at him, mock him and persecute him and kill him, so would these brothers be persecuted. And James here, the first first apostle uh, to be murdered for the name of Jesus. Now it says here that Herod stretched out his hand, that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that James was beheaded with the sword. But it goes on a little bit more deep in the account. And I want to read it to you straight from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Sorry, some of the language is hard for my Lakeview vocabulary. So I'm going to try the best that I can, okay? says this, The next martyr we meet with, according to St. Luke in the history of the Apostles' Acts, was James the son of Zebedee, the elder brother of John. It was not until ten years after the death of Stephen that the second martyrdom took place. For no sooner had Herod Agrippa been appointed governor of Judea than with a few to uh, ingratiate himself with them, he raised a sharp persecution against the Christians and determined to make an effectual blow by striking at their leaders. So he wanted to take care of the leaders. He wanted to lop lop off the head of Christianity. The account given us by an eminent primitive writer, Clemens Alexandrius, ought not to be overlooked. That as James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup, which he had told our Savior he was ready to drink. Isn't that incredible? You know, that at the time that he was to to count his life a loss for Jesus, he stood with such power and such grace that, that his captor, who, who accused him and wanted him dead, was brought to repentance, and they were both killed together. That's incredible. That's what Jesus talks about in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be witnesses or martyrs, is that word. You will be martyrs for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world. You know what? That same power is available for us today, that we can make a stand for Jesus even when the world wants to persecute us and hate us, even kill us. That same power is available for us today that the world would look on our sufferings and be converted as we stand for Jesus. I love that account of James' death. But Hebrews chapter 11, if you'll flip over there, verse 33 
Hebrews 11, I like to call it the hall of faith as it goes through so many of the, the heroes of the faith's lives and their, you know, their undaunted courage to stand uh, for the faith, to stand for God, uh, to stand for Jesus. And it's there in Hebrews 11.33 that we just get a description of what the Old Testament saints went through as well as the early church and, and, and you know, what we too could expect to go through. But it says this, Hebrews 11.33, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And then listen to this. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. So these men that went before us, these heroes of the faith, these James and Stephens, Every one of the apostles who'd lay down their lives for Jesus, even John, who didn't die a martyr's death, but was boiled in oil alive and set out on, an, on the island of Patmos, persecution severely upon him. These are heroes of the faith that the world just wasn't worthy of. You know, we get to breathe the same air that these men did. But you know what? They weren't made perfect apart from us, the author of Hebrews says. We too get to, to, to be part of that number, to live radical lives for Jesus, to, to hear the word of the Lord and believe the word of the Lord and obey the word of the Lord. That even in Prineville, you know, we could be numbered with these men and with these women doing extreme things for Jesus, not in our own strength, not for our glory by any means, but by his power and for his glory. And so as Herod's hand was out against James, uh, martyring James, you know, the world just wasn't worthy of that man's life. In verse 3, you know, we read of Herod being that man pleaser. He saw that it pleased the Jews, so he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he'd arrested him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So Herod intending to lop off the, the leaders of the church and uh, you know, killing James, killing, uh, attempting to kill Peter here, putting Peter in prison. Now remember, James, John, and Peter, they were all within the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. You know, they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They were taken further into the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane on Jesus' final evening. These were kind of like, uh, the core group of the core here. And, and we just see them leading in the early church. So James, let's kill him. Peter, let's kill him. And so he puts Peter in prison and really puts a guard around this guy. Four squads of soldiers. This is about 16 Roman soldiers, 16 to 20 Roman soldiers that are put around this one man. You know, he's put in prison and, uh, and, and you know, the intent was to bring him out after Passover. So there's about eight days from Passover the, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, eight days where Peter's um, in prison with these 16 guards uh, around him there. Verse five, therefore, or Peter was therefore kept in prison. And man, if you've got a pen today, put a star next to this. This is the key to the rest of the chapter. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. So, so the key of the events that are going to follow here, Peter being in prison, uh, was that constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now that word constant, it, it means fervent. And, and pause there for a second. Fervent speaks of uh, such heat that it causes uh, a, liquor, a, a solid 
to turn into a liquid and to boil. So those of you that have worked with, you know, welding and metals and cutting torches and, you know, you, you, you stick that torch or that rod against the metal and it just immediately is so hot, so powerful that this steel begins to, to, to melt and to boil and to pop. You know, that's, that's a description of a person's prayer life. That it would be that hot, that powerful, like electricity, you know, hitting metal, causing it to to melt. And so constant, fervent, hot, boiling prayer was offered by the church. Or, Or that word can mean earnest or prayer without ceasing. I mean, this was major prayer that was happening uh, on Peter's account there. And you know, in Colossians, you can flip over there, Colossians 4 verse 2, Paul just urges the, the church there in Colossae to continue earnestly in prayer. I just want to ask you, as we look at this, is this a description of you today? Is it a description of me? Are we people that continue earnestly, fervently in prayer? And he goes on to say, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Vigilant speaks of having open eyes. That while we're praying, not necessarily that your eyes have to be open, but that you're just sensitive to all that's going on and you're praying for it. You're, you're seeing what's happening around you and you're not ignoring it and you're not, you know, but, but Lord, what's happening and how can I pray and how can I specifically be praying and fighting in this battle through prayer? That we would continue in prayer with open eyes, uh, with thanksgiving. It goes on to say, pray for us also that God would open a door to the world. Uh, excuse me, let me read that again. God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray, pray fervently, pray with open eyes that a door would open to speak the word. Do we pray that? Does our church pray that? Do you pray that? That a door would be opened in Prineville so that the word could go forth with power. In Ephesians chapter 6, flip over there, verse 18, you know, Paul just gets done telling about the the armor of God and the weaponry that he's given us. You know, the weapon of our warfare, it's not carnal, but it's mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And he goes on to talk about one of these incredible weapons. It's a weapon of offense is, is prayer. He says, pray always with all prayer and supplications in the spirit being watchful. There it is again. To this end, with all perseverance and supplications for the saints. And then again, he says, and pray for me that utterance would be given to me, uh, that I might open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And so something that marked the early church, something that, you know, one of the most powerful Christians of all time, Paul said was pray fervently, pray, uh, persevere in prayer, you know, endure in prayer. Pray with, pray, pray, pray. Are you praying? James chapter five, verse 16, flip over there. James five sixteen, where it says that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Much. Let me read the amplified version to you. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Does that describe your prayer life today? Is your life heart, your prayer life heartfelt, continual? on fire, you know, dynamic power. Have you seen dynamic power going forth from your prayer time? I think it's something that the Lord wants for us as Christians. And just look at the next verse, James 5, 17, says that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Let's stop there for a second. What's our nature like? 
We get distracted. You know, the littlest things causes us to, to be distracted, you know. Uh, we stumble. We, you know, are tempted. We get discouraged. We get depressed. We're afraid. We doubt. Man, just think of our nature and then say, okay, it's me, and change my name to Elijah, <laughs> you know, because Elijah was just like me, okay? And, and it says that he prayed earnestly, that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. So imagine what that prayer time for Elijah must have looked like. Lord, you're telling me to pray that it won't rain. So I'm, I'm earnestly going to pray, Lord, stop the rain. Judge you know, wicked King Ahab and Jezebel and what they've been doing in this land and the worship to Baal and, and just hold back your provision of rain so that this land would suffer as they're in their idolatry. And I mean, you can just picture his fervent prayer and as he's praying and continually persevering, no clouds, no clouds, no clouds. And days turn to weeks, turn to months, turns to years, no rain. From a dude that's just like me in every way. You know, then after the victory on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18, the Lord says, okay, it's time for the rain to come back again. The, the, the prophets of Baal have been slaughtered. And so Elijah went up on Mount Carmel and he began to fervently, earnestly pray that the rain would come back. And it says seven times he prayed that the rain would come back. And he had a little servant there helping him out. And Jesus, bring back the rain. I'm not sure they'd use the word Jesus, but okay, we'll use that. Okay, uh, bring the rain, Lord. It's time, you know, you've, you've shown yourself strong and you've withheld. And now you've judged the prophets and bring the rain. Hey, buddy, go look, see if the rain cloud's coming. Runs over there. You know, you can see the ocean from Mount Carmel. Runs back. Uh, there's, there's nothing out there. It's still pretty dry, pretty parched. My lips are cracking. I need some chapstick, you know. All right, we'll just keep praying, praying, praying. No, go look, go look, go look. Seven times, no rain, no rain. Finally, the last time, no rain. Hey, what's that I see? I see a little cloud over the ocean, the size of a man's hand. And it began to rain. It began to rain after three and a half years of no rain. That's incredible, that God uses that. And the New Testament tells us it's the same today. That power is available for us today. If we would pray, if we would continue, if we would pray from our heart, dynamic power is available for us. Isn't that a beautiful, awesome thing? You know, I've just been thinking lately, I've been reading a lot of books on prayer. R.A. Torrey's How to Pray, Chuck Smith's The Privilege of Prayer, The Kneeling Christian. Just been looking at this and, and something I've just been learning lately is, you know, the questions out there, does God even need our prayers? I mean, he created the world without us praying that he'd create the world, right? You know, and he's sovereign and he's powerful and he can do whatever he wants. Why should we pray? So I'm just not going to pray. He can take care of it. He knows what to do. And while that's true that God doesn't need our prayers, our prayers don't fuel him, the awesome thing is because God is a relational God, God is a communal God, God loves using others, we have the privilege of partnering with God in the radical things that he wants to do. And prayer so often accomplishes things that otherwise would not be accomplished unless we pray. You see that all throughout the scriptures, that people prayed and then the certain thing happened. There's even times where men wrestle with God and, 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 you know, not argue with God, but plead with God. And God's mind is even changed through prayer, through pleading, through intercession. And so what a privilege prayer is. That God loves us enough and, and you know, he, he cares about the relationship and wants to use us. We get to be used by him. And he does things that otherwise wouldn't be done unless we asked for it. Such an exciting concept. And so as we've been working through the book of Acts, chapter 12, can you believe that? We're almost halfway done with the book. That's happened really fast. That's unusual, actually, uh, for me. But uh, as we've looked at the book of Acts, I've just been reminded of a Bible study we did a year ago that I have just owned, you know, uh, and it was entitled The Pulse of Prayer Throughout the Book of Acts. 
And remember last year, we looked all throughout the book of Acts, how boom, there's a pulse in Acts chapter 1 at the end of the chapter as they continued steadfastly in prayer, meeting in the upper, upper room. Boom, there's a pulse. Acts chapter 2, they're waiting on the Lord and the Holy Spirit falls on them. Boom. Acts chapter 4, after they're persecuted, they come back from the persecution and they pray for boldness, that God would be glorified in their suffering. Boom, there's another pulse. You know, boom, boom, boom. Here we are in chapter 12 and the early church is continuing steadfastly and many people are there corporately praying together. Boom, there's another giant pulse of prayer in the book of Acts. And man, as I've just been thinking just how God wants to use prayer just as much today in 2010 as he did back then. And it's my belief, I feel strongly that the church of 2010 should be just as much a praying church as it was back in 44 AD. Just as much. That, the, that God moves the same way. So often our idea of God is that he's some old codger guy that, you know, like in a nursing home somewhere that doesn't really care if we drop by, but he's sure grateful when we do, you know, and you don't have to spend much time with him because, you know, uh, he's just thankful for any time he can get, you know, and so whatever. That is not the God of the New Testament, the God of the New Testament is alive and powerful and just as smart and powerful as he was back in Moses' day. He moves the same way and he set us examples in the word of how we're to be as Christians. And I just, I, I want to urge you to be men and women of prayer. You know, a, a year ago, I introduced to you guys the vision that God's having me that, that our church is to be a praying church and a church that prays together corporately. And, you know, it seems that the Holy Spirit just stirred in people that they would be prayer warriors and that we would pray together corporately. And, man, the we, you know, I just said, okay, you know, so we're going to do this prayer meeting. We're going to call it the pulse, and we're going to pray together consistently, fervently, earnestly. Yeah, let's do it. First week, 40 people, maybe 35. And for months, you know, between 25 and 30 people every week coming. And, you know, around the time of February, you know, began to drop down to 8, 8 to 13. That's awesome. That is rad. Praise the Lord. And, you know, just as things happen, this last Thursday, we're at three people. Three people at the pulse, you know. And, you know, that is not condemning. I know. I realize that everyone works hard. They all have different schedules. Some of you genuinely cannot make it. And I totally understand. There is no condemnation coming from here. But as Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as he had told them a year ago, hey, there's a famine in Judea. I'm going to be coming through and I'm going to collect food supplies for the famine down in Judea. So have it ready. And they were so excited. Yeah, we're going to do food drives and all this stuff. We're going to have so much food ready so that when Paul comes through, we're going to take all this down to Judea. And then Paul heard that as a year went by, they totally forgot about it. And they didn't have any food ready. And he said, hey, you guys make sure that that food's ready because I don't want you to be embarrassed. And he says, as there was a purpose a year ago, so now there also must be a completion of that. And I just really feel like it's a word for us. It's just a reminder that the early church was a praying church. The early church was a church that prayed corporately together. And, you know, as the Lord has put on my heart as your shepherd that we're to corporately pray together, you know, I would encourage you guys to make the time and count the cost to be there for that. Just as you purposed a year ago in your heart to be there, don't let that die. If you're someone that can't make it, I totally understand. There's no, maybe the Lord wants it to be three people and that is okay. Even if it's just me, it will continue because I would not want to be a pastor uh, without that hour and a half of waiting on the Lord every week. But wherever you're at, I can't, make, Rory, I, I can't make it to Thursday night. No problem. Wherever you are at, be a fervent, continual prayer warrior. Because there is too much at stake for you to not use this powerful weaponry that God has designed and ordained to be used in this hour. Too much is at stake. I need your prayers. The early church 
coveted to pray for Peter while he was in prison. They prayed for their leaders. I need your prayers. Put my picture on your refrigerator, on your dashboard of your car. Put the elders' pictures. Put the church leadership. Pray for us. Too much is at stake for you not to think about us throughout the week until Sunday. Please pray for us. Charles Spurgeon was asked the secret to the successful ministry that the Lord had done through him. And he said, you know what? My people pray for me. My people pray for me. He also is the one that said, you know what? As he took the Bible college students on a tour throughout the church one day, he said, you guys want to see the boiler of the boiler room of the church that heats this whole building? And the students said, sure. You know, and he took him downstairs and he opened up the door and there was the church prayer meeting happening. He said, that's the boiler room. That's where the heat comes from. That's where the power comes from for this church. And if we want to have a hot, powerful church, you guys, we've got to pray. And and the New Testament early church example is corporate prayer together. So if it's not going to be Thursday night, take it upon yourselves to find a night or a morning with other moms, other businessmen, whatever it might be, and let's pray together, huh? There's too much at stake to not be using this vital weapon. Spurgeon also said this, Brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till, prayer, till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. Where's it, you know, on a scale of one to 10, where does the prayer meeting hold in your, in your scale? Man, may it be a 10 for every one of us, wherever that is, whatever prayer meeting that is. Let's covet with one another to be a praying church together. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, we see that prayerlessness is a sin. You know, it, 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 you know, well, I haven't been doing this, I haven't been doing that. Yeah, but have you been committing sins of omission? You know, because God's ordained for his people to be communicating people, to be talking to him, to be interceding, to be supplicating, to be thanking him. And Samuel says, as, as, the, as Israel asked for a king, you know, he says to them, you know what? As for me, far be it from me that I would sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Man, if we're ceasing to pray, we're in sin. There's something wrong in our life. Just good to take account. Man, this is for me just as much. I'll just, let me just confess, I'm weak in prayer. Okay, you know, I'll take time and I'll try to set it apart. I'll go out in my backyard or in my back porch and I'll have about 20 seconds of talking to God. And then all of a sudden I'm in another world thinking about something. There's an airplane in the sky, you know, or that's an interesting bird, you know. Oh, okay. Uh, I wonder what song Stuart's going to do tonight. You know, like, holy cow, can I just stay focused for five minutes, you know. And so that's why I'm so thankful for this time where I've set it aside in my week. And as much as I try to pray throughout the week, I come here Thursday nights and for an hour and a half, man, there is focus. There is just purpose. And and man, if you don't even know what I'm talking about, that's something that I just don't know. Come, come. And you might feel weak in prayer. And I always say, you know what? Prayer, praying is like lifting weights. You know, when you first start lifting weights, you just can't, you know, I'm scared to pray. I don't know how to pray out loud. What are people going to think? You know, just keep coming, keep coming to the gym. You know, oh, that's how you kind of bend that elbow. You know, oh, that's how you, you lift with the legs. Okay. You know, pretty soon you're, you know, pretty soon you're the guy that we can't get to be quiet during the prayer meeting. Oh, let other people pray. You know, you're getting buff in prayer. You got to exercise. You got to work out. So if fear is keeping you from prayer, that's the enemy. That's the enemy. You need to pray against that fear. All right, enough about prayer. Okay, fine. Um, but real quick, notice the early church was praying for Peter while he was in chains. And you know what? There's something awesome about that. How often are we praying for the Christians in this world who are laying down their lives every day, that are in chains, that are in prisons, that are starving in prisons because they won't deny Jesus Christ? And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3 says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Go to persecution.org and just have that be a a, a favorites on your web browser and just go and pray for these people. I am so bad. Every now and then, about two times a year, the Lord will remind me to pray for the prisoners. That's horrible. Um, Man, may we grow in praying that the Lord would would rescue them and, and sustain them. Moving right along. Verse six, 
And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So 16 guards guarding him, two of them are chained to him, and a couple guys standing at the door, major excuse me, major security because he had escaped from prison before in Acts chapter 5. So Herod wasn't about to let that happen again. And, uh, but notice in verse 6 that Peter was sleeping. Peter was sleeping. Isn't that incredible? His buddy had just been beheaded. And he's got 16 guards around him. And remember how the guards treated Jesus? They didn't treat him super nice. You know, you can bet they weren't treating Peter very nice. And yet in the midst of that, he's sleeping like a baby. Hey, I'm bush, guys. I'm ready to turn in, you know. You guys brush my teeth for me. My hands are a little bit. But, you know, uh, let's turn in. What do you guys think? You know, and they're like, what do you, you can sleep? He's sleeping like a baby. Has this perfect peace. Someone once called Peter sleeping here a triumph in faith. And I want to give you about four just observations of why Peter might be just sleeping like a baby here in such peace. First of all, Jesus had delivered him before. You know, Acts chapter 5, you know, he's probably thinking, you know what? If the Lord wants me in prison, amen. If he wants me out of prison, I've watched it happen where he's gotten me out before. I'm not even worried. He can get me out of here if he wants to. Uh, Another reason that he could be in such peace here is because he trusted Jesus. And here's a a verse I want you to turn to, Isaiah 26, 3. Just as I was studying, this verse just kept ringing in my head. Um, Isaiah 26, 3, it says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Let's read that again all together. You don't have to read it out loud. Let's all read it together one more time. Let's own this verse. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. You know, there's, there's enough people in this room that I'm no genius to say, there's some people here with concerns. There's some people in this room with worries. There's some people with anxious hearts. There's some people that are tossing and turning at bed at night and constantly, you know, keep thinking and thinking and thinking about this thing that's going to happen to him this week, or this person that's being like that to him, or we might lose our house, I can't find work, and you're just, you're worried. You know, and Psalms says, you know, don't eat anxious bread. You know, you're eating anxious bread, and it's bitter in your gut, you know. Trust in the Lord. Confess with your lips, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Every time you start worrying, just say it with your mouth. Start vocalizing it. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you. Like Peter was in the prison with the Roman guards. He trusted you. I trust you. I trust you, Lord. I trust you. Watch his peace just envelope you. 1 Peter 4.19, Peter writes this where he says, Therefore, let let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So here's Peter writing it. He can write it because he's experienced it. What does he know? Okay, he knows it because he's been in prison and almost beheaded. And he's able to say, if you are suffering, you need to commit your soul to, to the one who created you. And Lord, you gave breath to these lungs. You can take breath out of these lungs. It's obvious from the word of God that you love me and you care about me. And so I just, I trust you, Lord. I commit my soul to you as a faithful Creator. So Peter trusted Jesus. Another why, reason that he's um, sleeping, sleeping so well here and just resting in the midst of trials is because of the words of Jesus. Peter knew he was going to grow old. In uh, John chapter 21, verse 18, Jesus tells Peter, I, I'm telling you this, assuredly I tell you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked wherever you wished. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then it says, this he spoke, signifying what death he would glorify God. And when he'd spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So there at the Sea of Tiberias in John chapter 21, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to get old. 
And when you're old, you're going you're gonna to be martyred for me. And Jesus used the word stretched out your hands. Peter ended up being crucified for Jesus, but he declared that I'm not worthy to be killed in the same manner as my Lord. So they turned Peter upside down on the cross and he, he hung upside down. Studies show that his entrails came out his mouth as he hung there on the, on the Roman cross, the same area where Paul was beheaded. And so, you know, Peter is able to say, you know what? Jesus said this, I'm taking it to the bank. And you know what? When the word of God is the final authority in a Christian's life, everything about your life and your practices and your godliness and and your future and your dreams and your hopes, when it's all based upon the word of God, you can take it to the bank. You can sleep at night because you know the thoughts that the Lord has towards you. It's, his word is your authority. You can trust in it. Finally, why was Peter in such peace? The church was praying. The church was praying, no doubt, praying, Lord, he's probably afraid right now. Well, you know, little Rhoda that we're going to read about later, a little girl. He's probably afraid in jail, Lord, and help him to not be afraid, you know. And, oh, good prayer, Rhoda, you know. And no doubt, praying that over uh, Peter, and Philippians 4, 6, hopefully it's a verse you guys have memorized, says, be anxious for nothing. Be worried about nothing. <clears throat> but in everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to the Lord. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard your heart and mind speaks of a Roman garrison. In the same way that Peter was being guarded by the Roman garrison, his heart was be guarded, being guarded by the garrison of the Holy Spirit, a peace that no one could explain. As he has the possibility of being beheaded tomorrow, uh, you know, he, he, he has a peace. Because he, I'm sure he was praying and, and the church was praying for him. Such a peace. And so let me encourage you this. If you are in a place today where you're worried and you're anxious and you are tossing and turning at night and, you know, you're eating anxious bread, you feel like your hair's falling out or it's turning gray or something because of all the worry that you're going through, don't go through it alone. Come to the polls, even if it's the only week, night that you're able to come. One time, I'm able to come one time to the polls, Rory, and it's selfish reasons. I want to get prayer for myself. I'll say, right on. I'm so glad that you came. I don't want you going through these hard things by yourself. Let's pray. Let's pray for the peace of God to guard your heart. Or call, you know, get on calvarykirkcounty.com, click on the prayer link, and it'll have a little form you can fill out that goes out to the prayer chain so that tons of people can be praying for you in, in your worrying. Don't go through it alone. But Peter, totally sleeping here and, uh, and, and resting. And as he is there, verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So just this awesome miracle, you know, where, where supernatural meets natural, where, where the heavenly realm meets the physical realm. And this angel appears and you might even hear, a, oh, you know, maybe in the cell. Probably not. It doesn't say in the scriptures. So we'll leave that part out. But, you know, a light shines and, and you know, Peter is just like... You know, you just picture Peter, big fisherman guy, hair probably everywhere. And, well, hey, wait, Peter, wake up. Peter, wake up. Peter, Peter, wake up. Peter, ah, you know, strikes him. Get him up. Where, where, where? And, and in the midst of the miracle here where chains are falling off of hands by themselves. Pachink, what the? You know, um, there was still some, some responsibility that Peter had. There was still some uh, things that he had to take care of. You know, put your shoes on. I'm not doing that for you. Put your garment on. I'm not doing that for you. Do it yourself, buddy. By the way, those sandals could use a good delousing. You know, could use a good chemical treatment, you know. And, uh, and so as he gets all dressed and finally starts following, you know, the angel ends up leading him out. And um, verse 9, you know, Peter, when he went out and followed him, he did not know what was done uh, that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I mean, could you imagine this in the middle of the night? You're sound asleep, 
and you're all of a sudden there's an angel and things are happening and you know you're just drought you know you're just remembering the vision of the sheet and the animals coming down and how weird that was at the time <laughs> it's probably just another weird trance or vision or something that i'm in and it says verse 10 when they were past the first and the second guard posts they came to the iron gate that leads to the city which opened to them of its own accord and they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. So just this incredible miracle that, uh, that happens today, you know, incredible to hear stories as I was uh, studying of, you know, a, a Tibetan Christian preaching in his city and, and thrown into a well that had a locked sealed lid on the top and breaking his arm as he was down in there. And, uh, you know, for th- uh, gosh, it was a week that he was down in there. There was um, decaying corpses of other Christians that had been thrown down in there. And uh, he heard this voice, you know, that said, hey, come on, come on up here. And a rope came down with a perfect loop in it that was able to support him. And it pulled him up out of this cistern. But no one was up there when he got out. And so he went back into the, into the town, began preaching again, and uh, the, the people that were persecuting him arrested him again, beat him up again, and demanded to know who turned him in. And it was the leader, the chief of police that was persecuting him that had the, ga- uh, the key to the well on his belt, you know. And so no one knew how this guy had escaped and how he had gotten out, you know. And these types of things, they're, they're happening today. Um, by no means is it, you know, just a... An, couple centuries ago that we were seeing these types of things. Um, But, you know, Peter, verse 11, had come to himself. He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. You know, he just worships the Lord there. So when he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. So it says that where many were gathered together praying. You might just underline that again. Many people gathered together praying. Now let's quick look at who is this Mary is and who John Mark are. Uh, it's possible that this is the same house where the Last Supper was before Jesus was betrayed and crucified. Um, and we, we hear of John Mark, later became Peter's disciple and secretary, writes the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And most believe that it's actually the Gospel of Peter but Mark wrote it. And it's interesting, a little tidbit at the end of the Gospel of Mark, that uh, there was a young boy, about 16 years old, that followed the disciples out of the upper room to the garden. And when the uh, soldiers came and arrested Jesus, uh, someone uh, grabbed the... Um, uh, I don't know if I mentioned that this, this young man was just wrapped in a sheet of some kind. And they grabbed the sheet of this young guy and he ran off naked. You know, and most believe that was John Mark, that as the Last Supper was at his house, he's, go to bed, Mark, you know, and I'm trying, but it's so loud in there, you know, and he's like looking in, what's happening in that Last Supper? I'm going to follow him into the garden, you know, and he runs out there, and all this drama happens, and he ends up running away. Interesting that Mark's gospel tells that little story. But now here we see the same, possibly could be the same upper room and, and Mark's being a part of it here. We're going to see Mark just being used in the book of Acts in a radical way. And even in 2 Timothy, we hear of him again. But so this, this upper room or this house, they're praying and many were gathered together uh, praying there. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer that Rhoda means rose. And, and she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness. She did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. You know, these are sometimes in the Bible, you come to some humorous parts, you know, and it's kind of, it's kind of nice if you're like me and you enjoy some comedy, you know, because here they're praying so hard that Peter would get uh, rescued from prison. And, and here he is and Rhoda, just this young girl, just so excited, you know, oh my gosh, he's here, you know, and just like leaves Peter out there and uh, everyone thinks, oh, you crazy little girl, you're up too late, you know, just, that's not Peter. And, and what is their, um, what is their, uh, option of who it could be oh it's probably an angel or his angel or something and you know for the early church it was like hey angels you know we're we're in the midst of angels you know it's crazy they're just operating amongst us they had a total belief there and so they kind of brought just an angel let him go away we're praying now angel guy you know and uh, so you know no it's really him it's really him 
And uh, so Peter continued knocking, come on, open up, I've just escaped from prison. And they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished, they were struck dumb, you know, just, I can't believe it, he's out. And you know, it just goes to show us, man, when we pray, let's pray with the belief that Jesus can do it. He can do the great things. James chapter 1 tells us, man, when you pray, don't doubt about what you're praying. If you doubt, you're like a wave tossed in the sea. You're unstable in all your ways. And let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. But when we pray, pray with faith. Let's pray expecting that God can do. If it's his will, he will do these great and incredible things. And so... Uh, he motioned them with his hand, shh, keep silent, guys, I'm excited to see you too. And he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So this awesome prayer meeting, this home fellowship, really, that's happening there in Mary's house. And uh, notice real quick, what time of day were they praying? What time of day were they praying? All night long. They were praying all night long. And what type of people were at the prayer meeting? Adults as well as children, teenagers. You know, and so often we use our lives and our family lives as excuses to not be in fellowship or to not be in prayer. And let's just look at the early church. Man, they included their kids. You know, my wife comes to the Pulse to be here for any moms that want to come. And Lindsay would watch their kids. And, and so often no other kids come. So my kids are just in the prayer meeting with us, you know. And I'm like, I apologize if it's a bit distracting, but let's pray. And let's show these kids how to pray. And it's just so cool because Russell will start praying out. And Jesus, thank you for the day and that I didn't get a big bad spanking, you know. And then and I thank you that I didn't go to jail. And he's like praying all this stuff, you know. It's like, hey, man, pray. Pray, boy, pray, you know. And, uh, man, so often we use our family as an excuse. i got to stay home with the family. And then, let's be honest, are you even spending time with the family? Are you spending time with, you know, Michael Scott from The Office? Are you spending time with, you know, whoever else on the TV? You know, it's like, oh, we're spending time with Walter Cronkite, you know. He's not around anymore, I'm sorry. You know, spending time with those things. Man, let's come and spend time with Jesus uh, with our family. But, yeah, in the middle of the night, constant prayer was, was happening. And many, it says there in verse 12, many were gathered together uh, praying. And just, I want to to uh, just close the subject of prayer. We are almost done, but close the subject of prayer with just this quote. I've, I've shared it with you guys before, but the last few weeks has just been going around and around uh, in my heart. And it's actually by uh, Robert E. Lee, uh, the Confederate general, and he said this, Knowing that intercessory prayer is our mightiest weapon and the supreme call for all Christians today, I pleadingly urge our people everywhere to pray, believing that prayer is the greatest contribution that our people can make in this critical hour. I humbly urge that we take time to pray, to really pray. Let there be prayer at sunup, at noonday, at sundown, at midnight, all through the day, let us pray for our children, for youth, our aged, our pastors, our homes. Let us pray for our churches. Let us pray for ourselves that we may not lose the word concern out of our Christian vocabulary. Let us pray for our nation. Let us pray for those who've never known Jesus Christ in redeeming love, for moral forces everywhere, for our national leaders. Let prayer be our passion. Let prayer be our practice. Is prayer your passion? Is prayer your practice? It's not always mine. It's not always mine. Man, the Lord can work the discipline of prayer in us. And how powerful it is, you guys. Remember this. When the church prays, God moves. When the church prays, God moves. You want to see God move in Prineville? Pray. Do you want to see God move amongst the homeless in this town? Pray. Do you want to see God save the high school athletes? Pray. Pray. When, when, the, early, when the church pray, prays, God moves. As my buddy said, you know, when I pray, coincidences happen. You know, when I don't pray, they don't. Have you ever noticed that before? Moving on, we are almost done. Verse 18. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers 
about what had become of Peter. You can only imagine 16 soldiers that were given watch of one man and nobody knows where they're at, but two guys have empty shackles, you know, and two guards at the door like, I I was right here the whole time, (laughs) you know. Uh, What's going on? And remember, if the Romans lost a prisoner, they would face the same punishment that that prisoner uh, was going to face. And so we're going to see what ended up happening with these guys. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he stayed there. So these guards were killed. And despite their claims that we were all here, we can all witness that. I don't know what happened. Something miraculous, something supernatural, because we were right here. But Herod hardened his heart. He didn't care. He killed the guards, and then he just went up to Caesarea where his palace was on the coast. Um, Just a hard-hearted man. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So there's this famine going on. Apparently, Herod had a little more food that he could help other countries out in the midst of it. But he was angry with these guys. So his actually his uh, personal assistant was able to bring some of these uh, Tyre and, I guess, Tyre and Sidonians um, on down to Caesarea. And uh, it says in verse 21, 21, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. Now, it's amazing when you go to Caesarea to this day, it's one of my favorite stops in Israel. There's this massive uh, Colosseum amphitheater, and it used to be a huge bowl, but now half of it is is still standing. And um, what happened was when Rome fell, basically this place was left desolate and sand began to fill up this huge Colosseum so that it was not even known to be there. And one guy was out cleaning one day and hit a brick and kind of swept, swept away the brick and kept digging and kept digging. And, and they ended up uncovering this huge Colosseum. So when you get home, Google uh, the amphitheater in Caesarea. It's just this incredible place, okay? And today they do orchestra concerts there. The acoustics are awesome. It's all original stones. In chapter 24 and 26, we're going to see Paul in chains giving his defense before Festus and Herod there on the, on the stones that you go to. The awesome place. So anyways... Here Herod is in Caesarea. He's in this Colosseum. Uh, um, Josephus tells us that uh, there was a great sporting events happening and tons of people were gathered. And so Herod comes on in and it says he was arrayed in royal apparel. And Josephus tells us that he had um, robes made out of pure silver threads. Probably wasn't the most comfortable thing to wear, but this pure silver thread clothing that Herod was wearing as he came in and man, the Mediterranean sea is out there and the sun is shining. And uh, Josephus end up, ends up saying this, well, skip on over there. He says, Herod put on a garment made holy of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shown out after a surprising manner. So everyone's here rooting for King Herod. There's a lot of guys that are there to kind of butter him up so that he'll send them food up to, up to Tyre and Sidon. And he comes in and he's looking pretty good in that, in that silver row. And the people began shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So he begins to speak and, and they want something from him. And what do you do when you want something? You flatter people and, and they begin, oh, it's a God speaking. Look at you, you're shining in the Mediterranean. Oh, it's a God, it's a God, not a man, a God. And Herod, who should have said, no, there's one God. He was Jewish, you know, he, he knew the truth. He should have stopped them and said, no, no, man, I shouldn't have wore this today. I am looking good, you know, but, you know, don't worship me. Don't glorify me. And in fact, Josephus goes on to say that Herod did not rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. And so while he's getting all this, you know, it's been said flattery is like bubble gum. You can chew it for a little while, but don't swallow it. And uh, that's not actually true. You shouldn't chew it at all, um, the flattery. But uh, it says, you know, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give glory to God. 
and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, so that the angel of the Lord strikes two people in this chapter. He, he strikes in a good way, uh, Peter, wake up. The Lord wants to use you still. Get going. And he strikes this you know, pompous, arrogant, prideful man because of his sin and because he didn't give glory to God. And man, there is such danger in not giving glory to God. You know, uh, Billy Graham said that, you know, in ministry, you don't want to touch the gals, you don't want to touch the gold, and you don't want to touch the glory. You know, if, if you want to get shelved in ministry, don't touch those things. Those are God's. And as a pastor, man, I just want to be like a mirror that just reflects glory. Man, if if people give any accolades about anything, it all goes back to just praise Jesus. It's Jesus. It's his grace. There is nothing good in Rory that's worth a pat on the back or anything. Everything is about Jesus and his goodness. But we see here that he was struck and he was um, eaten by worms and died. Josephus says that while he was speaking, his heart began to hurt and his stomach began to hurt with excruciating pain. So they carried him out. And for five days, he was on a bed until after the fifth day, he actually exploded uh, with worms uh, that had been eating his insides. So the danger of not giving glory where glories do. Isaiah tells us that I am the Lord, I am he, and I will not share my glory with another. As the psalm says, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And isn't it interesting that here's a, a really a pagan man, a hard-hearted idol, you know, idol worshiper who hates Jesus and hates the Christians, And yet even he is accountable to God to give glory to God. You know, we were made by a creator. Therefore, that creator has creator rights over us. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, our body is not our own. It's the Lord's. It needs to be used for him to glorify him. And because of his sin, Herod was slain here. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.